All right, well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. So this, uh, this Sunday's sermon uh, is, hands down, the darkest and most demented series of, of verses I've ever taught. In fact, I've read the story multiple times, but um, it's, it's a very different experience digging into the story and allowing some of the realities of what happens um, to sink in. So uh, to be honest, there's a significant part of me that kind of just wants this sermon over. Uh, so I'm not going to skip on the exegesis or the study of the text so much as I'm just going to skip an introduction altogether. Uh, I want to set up some context and then I want to jump into um, Genesis chapter 9. My, my one singular point, it's also the title of the sermon, my one singular point is this. God's judgment is always just. God's judgment is always just. You're going to be challenged with this largely because you're going to hear people pull out scriptures like Genesis 19 and multiple other places in scripture and you're going to be tempted to listen to accusations of the injustice of God and how good God, if God was loving, how could he? And I want to actually this morning, I think, kind of make some sense of of all of this. I think by probably halfway through this text, you're going to agree that at the very least that God's obliteration of Sodom and Gomorrah was 100% justified. And my expectation is that if you were God, you would have done the same thing. In fact, if you were God, because you wouldn't be holy, you probably would have done much worse. Now, uh, you should note that whenever I am uncomfortable at all, I make inappropriate jokes. And uh, so uh, if, I, if I make a funny joke here or there, it's just my way of cutting the tension and it's okay to laugh. That's on me. All right, turn with me, Genesis 19 uh, and 18. Chapter 18, here's what we found. Um, three men show up and they are with Abraham. Uh, it turns out that one of the men is Yahweh. It's God incarnate. And every time, every time God takes flesh, it is not the Father or the Spirit, but the Son, Jesus. Right, that's good. And then the other two men are angels. And what we found last uh, week is that in chapter 18, um, Jesus is deliberating with the angels and he's trying to figure out, so do I tell Abraham what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Abraham was eavesdropping. And so uh, Abraham and Jesus have a conversation. And uh, the conversation was one where Abraham was wrestling with whether or not what God was about to do was fair and just. We saw God dismantle Abraham, his notions of reality, his expectations, his ideas, and bring him to a place of truth. We finally get to Genesis chapter 19, and here's what happens. Verse 1, the two angels, they came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. You have to know the gate is reserved very normally and often for the most important people in the city. So even though Lot is newer to the city, um, Lot is already probably because of the massive amount of wealth he accrued in Egypt. Um, also the massive amount of wealth he accrued uh, by being connected to Abraham, who is blessed financially, that he has become a very wealthy man. And now he comes to Sodom. And of course, he finds himself in a seat of prominence in the city. When Lot saw them, the two angels, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, uh, here, here's what's happening by letting you know kind of Lot's position in the city. Uh, the text, the author, is trying to prepare you for some weird things that are going to happen later on. Okay? Here's what you're going to find later on. I won't tell you all the details. I'll hold you in suspense, right? But here's what you're going to find. Um, Lot really loves this city a lot. This city has been good to him, and he's been good to this city. It's going to be really, really hard for Lot to let go of this city. Verse 2, and Lot said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, what? No. We will spend the night in the town square. 
Now, Lot knows exactly what this town is made of. He knows exactly what is going to happen. And the question the reader has to be able to ask is why? Why would they do this? These are angels. These are angels who know the nature and the character of the city. I'm going to give you a very simple reason for why they did this. To test the city. The pleas, the prayers, the blood of victims has risen up to Yahweh. He has heard of, of their hideous and terrible crimes they know well, full well, what is actually going to happen to them here in the city. Um, what were their crimes? Generally speaking, you could be really nice and say a lack of hospitality. Um, how about abuse and murder towards visitors in the city? And we're going to dig into what that actually looks like. Verse 3 says this, But he, Lot, pressed them, the angels, strongly. So they turned aside to him, and they entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And one of the descriptions of the New Testament to Lot is that Lot was righteous. There there are a lot of really great things about Lot. Lot, at some point, has these admirable attributes to him. There is a faith in Lot towards Yahweh, okay? This faith is going to get really hard to see here in a little bit, right? But you see these highlights. Hospitality is a beautiful mark, not just culturally, but especially in this city. His hospitality to these visitors is going to set him apart completely. And here's what it says. So they turned aside. They entered the house. They made him a feast, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, I want you to just linger and, and just pay attention to these nuances in the vocabulary, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So this isn't quiet. This is not a time of encouragement. This is straight out of a horror movie. Uh, What's about to happen is vile. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Young men, five, six, seven years old. Old men, 60s, 70s, 80s. Old then is different than old now, so be. All the men to the very last one. Shout, bring them out so that we might gang rape them. This is the objective. No shame, no hesitation. Whatever this is, is normal. Lot knew not what they were capable of out of theory. He knew who they were because of firsthand experience. Because he has watched this scenario play itself out enough times. Yahweh has heard from enough people their pleas and their cries and their prayers and the blood that has been shed on the ground. Yahweh has heard enough. This isn't new. This is not a first-time offense. This is their normal. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and he shut the door after them. So he shuts the door, leaves the angels inside. He has some words with them. And he says this, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Have you ever called out somebody in the middle of their sin and told them that they are a sinner? (laughs) It doesn't really go well. When people are in the midst of sin, 
Uh, they typically don't like to be rebuked. Like, try going up to somebody on the side of the road and be like, do you know that what you're about to do is sin? Do you know that, like, your whole lifestyle is sinful? Do you understand that it's wicked and evil? Like, you're, you're likely going to just be picking a fight in that moment. And when you call somebody's lifestyle evil, this is their lifestyle, by the way. This, when you call it evil, you're just poking the bear. So then, then Lot does something that's really, really frustrating because... Um, uh, here's our tendency. Okay? Our tendency is to imagine that his two daughters are like our two daughters. Uh, his two daughters are 15 years old, they're sweet, and they're compliant, and they're nice, and everything else. And so we transfer all of our concepts of these young women, probably through the stories and narratives of our own life, and then we transfer them to the text. And sometimes when we do this, we actually do miss the main point of what's actually happening here. And so I'll read you what happens, and then, and then I'm going to try to maybe give you some opportunities to understand why Lot might do something like this. So Lot, uh, verse 6, went out to the door. He rebukes them in verse 7, verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters whom have not known, who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Is anybody frustrated with Lot right now? So when, when 2 Peter looks back and says, Lot, that righteous man, don't you want to like say, Peter, are you reading the same story I'm reading? He goes on. Only do nothing to these men. Who, by the way, he doesn't even know these men. His daughters, these men. For they have come under the shelter of my roof. And I, I've heard multiple explanations in terms of hospitality and, and that one of the greatest cultural values of this time uh, is hospitality and it would be a greater evil to disrespect a guest than it would be to hand over your daughters to be gang raped by this crowd of, of perverted, disgusting men. Uh, so here's what I want to try to do. I, I do understand on the one hand there's nothing that I'm going to be able to say that's going to make this better and I don't even know that that we are supposed to, as discerning readers of this, try to make this better. I don't think there's anything good about it. The whole thing just stinks. I want to give you a couple options, though, uh, of how you might see this. Um, especially, like, I like to play some games when I'm interpreting Scripture. Um, what if it was a good decision that he made? What if it was actually a righteous decision? Okay, are there any scenarios that could plausibly make this into an okay act. I know that's a terrible thought to have, but here's what 2 Peter 2.8 says. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he, Lot, was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so what does the New Testament, as it reflects in the story, want you to know about Lot? He is righteous. Does that frustrate anybody else? Okay, I'm irritated. So now I'm trying to do like, like uh, exegetical gymnastics. I'm like, okay, Lord, how do I plausibly interpret this text in a way that highlights the righteousness of Lot like Peter is trying to do? And I'm going to give you a couple options, but here's what I know. I don't know the answer. Uh, but there is a sense in narrative where, where the Jewish authors want you to empathize. They want you to stop for a moment. And before you judge, you put yourself into their shoes and you say, what scenarios could plausibly lead, lead to this? Here, here's one option. Um, lots of, well, here, actually, you need to know this. Um, their fiancés, because they're engaged, the text tells you that later, they're actually a part of the men in the crowd. So Lot's daughters are engaged, and all the men to the last, the young and the old, two of the men were Lot's future sons. So now here, here, here's an option. Maybe, maybe Lot believed that these men would never allow this to happen to their future wives. Maybe he believed 
that if he sent out his daughters, that maybe they would stop the whole thing and they would go back home and these men would stand up. Maybe if they are men that are engaged to Lot's daughters and he is one of the richest, uh, most successful, most notable men of the city, maybe they also have influence also. Maybe he's trying to elevate their influence and he's trying to quench the whole discussion. Maybe. That's an option, right? Here's another one. Maybe Lot's daughters um, are telling Lot to give these men over. Maybe Lot's daughters let their fiancés know that these men were here and they instigated the entire thing. Now, Michael, why would you plausibly even think they'd be capable of doing that? Because at the end of this story, sorry to spoil the ending, they, they rape their father. And Sodom is deep, deep inside the soul of these women. Lot's daughters were Sodom. Corrupt to the core. Guilty. That's who they are. So here's what the story wants you to know when you read the whole chapter. These young women are not innocent. They are vile young women as guilty of anything else that is happening in Sodom. They are not okay. They are corrupt. And it stands to reason that these two young daughters had some part to play in this, whether it's egging their father on, saying, no, give over the men, or whether it's getting the, their, their fiancés together to rile up this crowd, we, we don't know. But here, here's what I do know. There are some scenarios where it would seem actually maybe even plausible uh, that Lot may do this. Now, again, it's all just terrible, right? Um, but when you start to understand that maybe the daughters were a part of coordinating this, maybe their character is as vile as all the men, that they're willing to do sexually to their father against his will, what these men are willing to do against these strangers. Maybe when you understand that, maybe there's something more to the story that we're not getting. And so one of the things that I prefer to do when I read this is to say, God, I don't know the details. I'm going to try to give Lot the benefit for the doubt because he is an impossibly frustrating situation. Verse 9 goes on, and various people start shouting. So this option is not good. People are shouting different things. One crew says this, stand back. They're getting ready to break the door down. Um, and Lot and his daughters and his wife and these men are sitting inside of the house. Um, other people said this, this fellow came to sojourn, meaning obviously Lot wasn't born and raised in Sodom, and he has become the judge, right? Who are you to tell us what is good and bad and to judge our lifestyle? Now we will deal worse with you, Lot, than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot. Lot has shut the door behind him and they started to press against him. Lot gets the door open and they drew near to break down or to break the door down. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands. Now this is uh, the angels inside of the house. They reached out their hands. They brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness. Uh, the, the interpretation of this could mean a couple things. It could be a psychological insanity. Um, it could be an actual physical blindness. The idea here is that they had no ability to reason. They couldn't find their left from the right or to figure out what's really going on. It could have been a combination of physical blindness and mental insanity or just physical blindness. I feel like if I was just blinded, I would probably be able to find a door, but that's just me. Verse 11, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. I just want you to catch this. This is, the text is not letting these people off the hook. Every time your heart wants to say something like, they couldn't be that bad, the text never lets you go there. Here's what it says. 
So they're blinded, they're psychologically messed up in the head, but they wouldn't stop so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Their lust is so insatiable, their intent so dogmatic, that even in the midst of blindness and psychological crazy, they are still like, we will satisfy our lust. This is going to happen. I want to ask you a bold question with an obvious answer. What would be the just punishment for a man who would take his seven-year-old child with him to gang rape a stranger, teach him how to do it, to then kill said stranger, and on top of this, to do it publicly? And what would you do if said father didn't just do this once, but had a reputation for doing this? Here's what I know about the vast majority of you in this room. You would be in full support of the death penalty for this father. And yet, uh, often liberal theologians will come in, they'll enter this text, they'll just parachute in without any context whatsoever, and they'll say, look, God is guilty of mass genocide. God is a moral culprit. And here's what I know. I know that the vast majority of you in this room, in fact, would not have just obliterated these cities. You would have done it sooner, and you would have done it more widespread, and you probably would have wiped out Lot in the process. Here's what I do know. I, I do know that those kind of accusations do not take seriously the vile nature of what is happening inside of these men in this city. Um, the book of Second Peter chapter 2, I'm not going to put it on the screen, I just want you to listen, um, actually talks about the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, and here's what it says. Let this just sink in. This is the New Testament's overall view of, of these men. Second Peter 2.12, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, no thought, just born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for the wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. If you're, if you're new to the village church, I want to welcome you. I think it's really glad to have you here today. <laughs> One of the things that we do, actually, is we read through, uh, we teach through books of the Bible uh, most weeks, and um, all of Scripture is good, and it reveals truth. And uh, this is not easy, but this is the real assessment of these places. I think Second Peter honestly writes this for us, um, so that we can understand what could plausibly drive God to eviscerate and incinerate an entire group of cities and all of their surroundings. Verse 12 goes on, uh, and just when you think, this was frustrating enough. We're about to enter into a new aspect of frustration in this text. This text gets more and more irritating. Then the men, the angels, technically said to Lot, 
Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Pop, pop quiz, who wants all the credit for the destruction? God does. He, this text will go on, and the Lord wants everyone here to know God did this. Okay? And the angels are only doing it at the command of of Yahweh. Verse 14. So Lot went out and he said to his sons-in-law. Now here's what's interesting. He goes out of his house. Where are his sons-in-law? Probably on the ground outside of his house, exhausted from groping, overcoming their, their psychological blindness and plausibly their physical blindness. And he says to them, get up. Why? Because they're down. That's the point. Now pay attention to that word up because it's going to come here again. It's going to come up again. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Lot didn't have to go far to find his future sons-in-law, did he? And their response is, of course, uh, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Ah, funny, Dad, funny. That's hilarious. Uh, we're going to go back to sleep outside of your house. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. Now, you should be asking this. Why didn't Lot just leave? Okay. Saying, up! Why are you sitting? Why, why aren't you moving? Why is, why is it the next day? Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Look at these three words. But he lingered. Do you just want to reach the pages of scripture and like wring his neck? They literally just blinded everybody. They protected your life, and they're telling you they're going to destroy the city. Why are you lingering? The city had Lot's heart. He loved Sodom. He might have been tormenting his soul in one degree, but to the other side, he loved the city. This city made him rich. It made him famous. It indulged some dark part of him that he could not let go. Watch this. So the men seized him. Like this is, here's the picture. They grab him. They pick him up. They throw him over their shoulder. And they say, I'm done playing games with you. Yahweh told us to keep you alive. And if you, we are going to destroy this place. So I'm going to take you myself. And they seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. So two angels, I imagine Lot on one shoulder, wife on another shoulder. The other angel gets one daughter on one shoulder, one daughter on the other shoulder. And they march them out past the gate outside of the city. And they say, for the love of God, leave. Leave. What would you do? You leave. Have you ever just seen someone in their sin and you're like, kill it. Let it go. And they're like has their heart. And we watch this all the time. I'm just like, the Lord is going to judge this. This is not good. It is not holy. And yet we just, we hold on. And there's these little pieces and we just hold, we hold on. What does this tell you about God? I know what it tells me about Lot. He's a moron. What does it tell me about God? Aren't you really, really glad when your heart is longing for its idols and the Lord is saying, go, aren't you glad that he's really merciful to you? 
Lot doesn't deserve any of this. None of it. I think how many times should we have been destroyed in our sin? The Lord was merciful. Verse 17, and they brought them out. And one said, escape for your life. Bro, this thing's going down. Everything is going to be incinerated. Please get out of here. And by the way, we're accountable to Yahweh for your life and safety. So could you please, please get out of here? Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And this is where Lot is supposed to say, yes, sir. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords. Oh, my gosh. Lot, you're the most irritating person I've ever read in scripture. Like legitimately, like the moment he shows up with Abraham, I'm like, oh, this guy is no good, no good. So he's excuses, bold. Okay, your servant is on favor in your sight. That's clear. And you have shown me great kindness and saving my life. Really grateful. But I, I cannot escape to the hills because the disaster will overtake me and I die. You don't understand like what's about to happen, angels, clearly. Like I know about the nature of this destruction better than you do. Uh, I really feel like you should take heed. And at this point, I imagine the angels are like, oh my gosh, just stop talking. Just stop. <laughs> Behold, this city over here, it's near enough to flee to. And it's a little one. It's not that big. Like Sodom, Gomorrah, these are big. But like, like now here's what you need to know. Uh, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that got destroyed. It was all the neighboring towns around them. Okay? And, that, and, and Lot knew this. And so God, Lot looks over and he's like, oh, like he sees this little city. It's called Zoar, which means little, uh, ironically. And so he's like, it's just a, a little one. Look what it says twice. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little? It's not that big of a deal. Like the Yahweh won't care, whatever, you know. And my life will be saved. Now this is the point where the angels should just smack him, knock him unconscious, and drag him all the way over to the hills. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also, just shut your mouth and let's go. That I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Originally, that was their intent to do it. Not going to do it. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. I'm not allowed to destroy until you, until you get out of the way. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord who did this the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So here's my question. What do you imagine Yahweh felt when he rained down fire and sulfur from heaven? So... The narrative that for some reason uh, American Christians have in their mind at times is that God found like giddy pleasure over this. And what I want to do is I want to frame the emotional state of God before you. There are multiple texts we could read, but I want to focus on Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. It says this. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is the death of the wicked inevitable? Yes. Is judgment inevitable? Yes. Is there an ounce of joy or pleasure or giddiness or masochism or sadism that God has whatsoever, sorry, sadism in this in any way? And the answer, of course, is no. There's no pleasure. There is no joy. And so any notion in your brain that God is sinister like has to be taken out. The, the scriptures don't let you go there. Verse 26. The Lot's wife. 
don't know where the, who this woman is. I don't know where she came from. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Uh, it is unbelievable to me that Lot did not look back. Because the only way he's going to figure this out, by the way, without getting destroyed, he's going to keep running. He's going to keep running. And finally, when he gets to the city, he's going to look back and see a big pillar of salt. And this woman apparently was not good for him. She loved, she loved Sodom. Uh, this was a place where her heart um, was fully invested. Jesus actually um, references Lot's wife, and here's what he said. Here's what he wants the people of God to know as a result from Lot's wife. He says this in Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And the warning of Jesus is when Sodom or the idols of your heart call you and the Lord says, walk away, and you walk away, but you keep looking back, your destruction is going to be inevitable. There's a plea for the people of God from Jesus to look back at Lot's wife and just say this, kill your sin, get rid of it, walk in the other direction for the love of God, leave it behind, and don't look back because destruction is waiting for those people. Verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, of the, of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And what the text wants you to know is the only reason God spared Lot was because Abraham interceded and begged God to release him. Verse 30 now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. It's interesting, he didn't even go to Zoar, (laughs) right? For he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. I mean, let's just take a moment here and Again, before the scriptures ask you to judge the characters, I think empathy is, is just kind of where you want to land for a moment. So imagine the darkness that he experiences in this cage, the soul darkness. His idols, his wife, his wealth, his reputation, his safety, his future, his entire life, everything he has ever known is gone. Can I just tell you some of the deepest moments of despair that I watch in people's lives is when he rips out and kills their idols and leaves them without them alone. Like sometimes God in an act of mercy will just reach into your life and he will rip your idols out of your life. And let me tell you, those are some of those saddest moments that people, especially followers of Christ, go through. Because so much of our heart, whether we realize it or not, can be invested in these idols. And sometimes the Lord just says, enough is enough. I'm going to completely take this out. I'm going to kill it. All the things you find identity in, they're done. They're gone once and for all. And it is not an uncommon experience when the Lord does this to watch somebody grieve over the loss of their idols rather than see the freedom that Jesus Christ has just given them. And just when we thought this story couldn't get any worse, um, the next few verses, um, Lot's daughters end up getting their father drunk and then raping him and getting pregnant by him. And then here's what verse 36 says. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger son also bore a son and called his name Benami. He's the father of the Amorites 
to this day. Imagine you're at your lowest. Like literally you've lost everything and then you were raped. Like the Lord is, is, is I don't know what he's, what he's doing other than destroying Sodom, but I, knew, I know that Lot, nothing could take this man lower. Nothing whatsoever. Even the names of their children um, scream incest. So when you name a child, typically you're proud of the name, and Moab means son of my father. Ben-Ami means son of my close relative. Like the whole thing is dark and demented and sad and pathetic, and you're probably like, Michael, finish the sermon. Um, it went from bad to worse to worse to worse, and wherever these girls went, the sins of Sodom came with them. So I have 37 so what's, but I decided to whittle it down to five for your benefit, and then we'll be done. And we're going to celebrate communion and thank God that Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins. So what, number one, never forget the blessing of the Judeo-Christian ethic our culture has been built on. If you think this is crazy, what we're reading about, um, you and I feel so far away from this because Western culture has been built on Christian morals and values. And it is deep in our bones and our blood. It is built into the very fabric of our judicial system, of our constitution, of the way we function as a community, of our local laws, of our morals, our ethics, our family values. Like so much of this is built on just simply the Judeo-Christian ethic. And one of the gifts that God gave to the world by isolating the Jewish people and creating a very strict culture through this nation is that he would bless the entire world with a better, more life-giving way. You and I could have been born in any city, in any time, in any culture, and literally this right now, right here, the blessing and the privilege that you have to be born here and not in Sodom. You didn't choose where you were born. You don't get to be entitled because of where you were born. The Lord gave that to you. And we have this joy and privilege All around us, despite how dark at times our culture is getting, the very fabric and foundation of our Western culture is still built on this Judeo-Christian ethic. Fading as it might be at times in different ways, this is still the foundation, and I just want you to be very, very grateful to God. And here's one of the ways the church can make an incredible difference is by raising up our children and replicating this cultural system from one generation to the next. But point number two, so what number two, your children are not stronger than the culture they live in. If for one moment you abandon your children to technology or TV and you are not the primary influencer and discipler in their life, I'm telling you this. We've crossed a threshold and it is now our obligation to be intentional and intent on discipling and raising our children. It requires an all-in effort. Okay? It requires us being all in with our local church, all in with the parents who love Jesus, that our kids are, are friends with. It requires us being all in with our habits and our patterns and our daily rituals and how we pray for our kids and how we teach them scripture and what programs we let them go in and the things we, like there's too much at stake right now. We're watching kid after kid after kid after kid be lost because mom and dad were too, quote, busy and abandoned them to media. And I'm telling you, it is a hard battle to win in the first place. Do not abandon them. Do not abandon them. And if you want any help with that, our pastoral staff would love to help you. If you need counseling, you need training, you need whatever it is, whatever you need, do not walk out of here hopeless and helpless because we want to help you raise up the next generation for Jesus Christ. Number three, you are not above your culture. Protect yourself. This culture wants to get hooks into your heart, into your soul, offer you its best so that when the Lord calls you in a different direction, you linger. Do not 
let it have your heart. Here's what I know. The Holy Spirit probably in some of you right now is just like sparking a little light inside of you saying, hey, I'm going to shine a flashlight on this part of your heart. The world has this part of your heart. Kill it now. Kill it now. Let it go. The Holy Spirit probably has something very specific for many of you in this room. Um, Cultural blind spots are a very real, real thing. Uh, The Aztecs would throw babies off of pyramids to make it rain, and that was logical to them. So here's my thing. Like, sometimes when you grow up in a culture, there are things that seem really logical to you, right? But they're actually incredibly stupid. They're incredibly nonsensical, but because it's a cultural blind spot, we don't always see that. But you know what you can see? When you go to other cultures and you watch some of their decisions and habits and patterns, you're like, they're completely inefficient. Why are they even doing that? They're ridiculous, right? Well, that's what they think when they come here too. And sometimes you need to get outside of yourself or to ask other people, hey, what are some of the weird things going on? Whenever we hire a new staff member, like with Josh, I'm like, fresh eyes. Josh, what do we do as Village Church that's just not smart? Right? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's not loving. That isn't consistent. You know? And whenever you have a new person, right, you get this picture. But here's the deal. In your community groups, I want to challenge you. Ask this question. Where are my cultural blind spots? Where, where are the church's cultural blind spots? I'll give you one right off, right off the bat. Um, this, gener- this younger generation, right, um, we have a lot less rules than former generations. Uh, every generation has its strengths and its weaknesses, Right? No generation is probably better than another one, but they just, well, that's debatable, actually. Yeah. Um, but historically, the Christian church, right, you, they had a lot of rules, fundamentalism, legalism, et cetera, and then millennials and Gen X and, and Gen Zers have come in and said, no, no, don't, don't impose rules that the scriptures don't impose. Let me tell you what our kids are going to say about millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Zers. Here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, um, you're too worldly, uh, and your desire to not have any laws... You look just like the world and there is no difference. And so we're going to raise a generation of kids who are discontent with our worldliness and Jesus is going to call them to another another level of holiness that we can't even touch. That's going to be one of our massive cultural blind spots, how easily we just buy into um, whatever the culture wants to give us in terms of, we'll say, media, music, what you watch on TV, what you intake. It's no big deal. I'm telling you, your kids will think it's a big deal if they get right with the Lord at a young age. Number four. God is a just judge. I don't want to leave this text without declaring that our God, to the very core of his being, is just. There is no unrighteousness or injustice within him. And finally, we'll close with this. God is a merciful Savior. Listen to what 2 Peter chapter 7 says about Lot. And if he, Yahweh, rescued righteous Lot. It's hard for me to read righteous Lot, but if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. If God can rescue Lot can he not rescue you? If Lot, with his moral corruption and his stupidity, right? If God can have a heart for him, can he not have a heart for you? And some of you, you need the Lord to intervene and to rescue you. And I want to just close with this thought. As hard as this text is, as demented as people can be, as demented as the Sodomites were, God is a merciful 
Savior to those who call on the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for Jesus. I cannot imagine a world where I would be capable of the sins of Sodom. And yet I cannot imagine a world where I grew up in Sodom. Where my dad or my mom trained me in wickedness and evil and greed and indulging whatever desire I have from a young age. I can't, I can't relate to that. So there's just a huge thank, uh, attitude of thankfulness in my heart. And I know there's so many of my brothers and sisters have that same just gratitude right now. We, we cannot relate. And even that inability to relate is a gift. Thank you. But Lord, we confess we are sinners. I'm, I'm struck by how good you have been to us, by what you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we celebrate communion, would you fill us with gratitude for what you have done for us? We love you, and we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.